Time travel is possible. This episode of the To Die For Daily podcast is brought to you by Clio Global. With the muse of history at its heart, Clio's mission is to recreate the past's aromas. Visit clio.global for more information. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi all, Kinsey Schofield here with the To Die For Daily podcast. And today's episode is another virtual happy hour celebrating Gareth Russell's new book, Do Let's Have Another Drink, about the Queen Mother, with special guest Shannon Felton-Spence, an American commentator. Now, Gareth, big timed us had a bbc interview so stumbles in a little late in the chat um, but shannon and i are here to give you the latest and greatest on everything related to the crown season five in his absence uh, just heads up there are apparently some spoilers i don't these are alleged scenes in the crown but i just want to give you a heads up if you are wanting to wait to watch the crown with a fresh perspective. We do break down uh, some of the expected storylines and scenes uh, in the next few minutes. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. We met uh, in London when we were doing the Jubilee, which might have been the most fun ever because I've never met other royal commentators, but all of a sudden we were all in one green room and it was just like the biggest party ever. It was And there was free food. That's right. That's right. And hair and makeup, which was fabulous. (laughs) Um, No. Yeah. So I, um, I used to work for the British government. I was the head of public affairs at the consulate here in New England. And through that, working with the foreign office, you know, very familiar with the royals and the inner workings of the government and fell into this super fun role of royal commentating. I just love it. I love that. And you really do have a great resume for it. We are uh, fans of The Crown and it's coming out November 9th. Um, I I refer to it as a guilty pleasure because I know that it's fiction and I realize that some people feel like it has a negative effect on the monarchy. What's your take? Yeah, so uh, it's a guilty pleasure of mine as well. So it's basically like an annual holiday in my house. It usually comes out around November or December. This year, it's actually coming out on my birthday. Oh, but I usually like, thank you. Usually take a whole day to just binge all 10 episodes and fill out my Christmas cards or whatever the case may be. Um, This year could not be worse timing. It could not be worse timing for the royal family and the institution. And um, I think Guilty Pleasure was fair when we were talking about the Queen and Prince Philip in the 50s and the 60s. And we're sort of ancient history, imagining conversations and putting some drama to it. But now it's just like too close to home. And we all remember the 90s. The 90s was the ugliest time for the royals in modern history. They cast Dominic West, who is just not a likable character in anything that he plays. I mean, excellent actor, but likable in what he plays as as the now king. It's just, it's really, really a mess. Well, what I thought was interesting about the Dominic West casting is it, before he was cast in the crown and maybe he there were conversations happening behind the scenes that we don't know about but i would watch him i specifically remember during covid-19 watching him on one of the morning shows maybe it was good morning britain singing mm. prince charles's praises he volunteers for the prince's trust i was under the impression that they had a friendship and if you if you have a friendship like that are you not jeopardizing it by playing 
Prince Charles and the crown, uh, now King Charles. I, isn't, I, I mean, I don't know how, maybe he was just being glowing and kind because he volunteers for his charity, but I thought either he knows something that we don't, maybe they're not going to be as, as, I mean, to me, I did, I, season three Charles and season four Charles were completely different. Maybe season five Charles will be different too. Oh, here comes Gareth. Welcome to the oh, party. Yes. Okay. Hello. Hi, it feels so good. <laughs> we were just talking about the free food at Jubilee. Oh, so good. <laughs> but do you remember Kinsey's address at Jubilee? Yeah. You will never forget. I will never that forget. That was fabulous. Oh, you guys. I got a purple one, too. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just see massive. I was talking to some people at BBC tonight. I was like, look, we have to be, like, prepared for the 6th of May because we didn't coordinate. They did their last hit in D10. I had to still to do Al Jazeera. And the last thing I heard was them, you know, shutting tequila. They were going to, like, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> so I just said, we need to coordinate the coronation that we have, you know. I'm telling you, I sent I sent a text to the group chat asking what hotel are we staying at. <laughs> oh, we did you? I did. I missed that. I'll tell you what hotel I like. Uh, I'll send it in the group chat because I don't want anybody to yeah. swoop it up. Um, but it's it's near Buckingham Palace and it has AC. And I'm an American and it drives me crazy when I get over there and I don't have the air Got to get that aircon. Huh? Is it the corner? It was like it's next to Victoria Train Station, is it? Or yes, it's like an old railway station with a big entrance hole. It, that's where near there. Yes. Yeah, that it has AC too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, I hope you don't mind. We were talking about the crown, lots of new breakdowns. And um, Shannon, I'd asked you, who knows what I'd asked you. Oh, yeah. Well, you were asking, you were asking about Dominic West and he oh, yes. had, had, was flattering about the king. So now I will say that I think that's encouraging. I, I don't think for his, uh, portrayal uh, on the Netflix show because the material of Prince Charles through the 90s is really not going to give him a lot to work with. It's just kind of a nasty period in his life, to be honest. But I do think what we should take from that, and I think we're going to talk about that more, is um, people that know him love him, the king. There mm -hmm. is so much more to his story than 1993 mm -hmm. that people just don't really see this full amount of him. And, and oftentimes people that have been touched by the prince's trust have very kind things to say and how impactful that has been. But also on my side of the aisle, which is the government side of the aisle, I mean, an, an extremely competent, kind, thoughtful man um, that, um, I, you know, I have never heard anybody that works for him have a a, a, a nasty thing to say about him. So okay. um, I think, I think, like I said, Dominic West is not known for portraying kind men but maybe we'll get a more comprehensive picture of the prince that would be that would be nice the king excuse me uh, oh no no it's like it's a drinking game now and welcome to our happy hour um <laughs> you have, what do you have any do you have any opinion on dominic west as king charles well, prince charles I love, I love him as an actor i will say that um we saw a little bit of this with victoria hamilton when she played the queen mother in season one and two where she did say more positive things about the character than the show portrayed. Mm. You know, she, I think she said in an interview, with, it might have been with The Independent, I could be wrong, but she said, I don't think the queen... She basically said the show writes the Queen Mother with an arched eyebrow. I don't get the impression the Queen Mother is Peter Morgan's favourite royal. So Ooh. you have had actors before maybe put a little bit of distance between themselves and, and the role. Um, 
Dominic West is a brilliant actor. I completely agree with Shannon. I think it's a little bit discouraging and unfair for for anyone to be blamed for to be defined by a single moment in their life, by a difficult period in their life. Uh, you know, I, I would hope. I, I, in the same way, I, you know, some of Diana's critics only seem interested in the dynamics of her marriage and don't look at the broader aspect of what of how impactful she was with her charity work as well. So, um, I, I think the problem with the Netflix, sorry, that the Crown has had is that this is a show that has constantly, or at least in season one and two trumpeted to the rooftops its historical consultants its historical research its comparative historical accuracy there is a lot of emphasis put on that in the early marketing and now they are in a difficult position because having done that for seasons one and two they are nervous about five and six being held to those previous high standards if that makes any sense so i think in that that the rings sort of, they're being um Render their their position is rendered difficult by their previous marketing. I would say. Agreed. Right. I have a question that only you can answer about the the crown, which is, do we? What do we think is the truth about that scene with um the Thatchers and the the Queen Mother uh playing the drinking game at Balmoral? Yeah. Well, see, the thing is that Thatcher and the Queen Mother got on really well. That actually, she was Thatcher's favorite was the Queen Mother apparently, and the Queen Mother used to toast Thatcher, um at, at dinner parties. So. But um, Ibble Dibble is a real drinking game. I can <laughs> um, and uh, I sympathised with uh, Prime Minister Thatcher in that because it is tricky. And I can tell you that from someone who has been on the losing end of Ibble Dibble several times. <laughs> um, I, I do think that Thatcher apparently did struggle with some of those kind of old money rah-rah-rah drinking games. I, I, think, I don't think that was a million miles removed. Uh, I think Balmoral was tough for her. I don't think it was her natural uh, natural milieu. So yeah, I think, she, I think she found the drinking games and all that sort of stuff a bit tiresome and ridiculous. I don't know if that's... But I think certain members of the royal family were more welcoming to her, particularly the Queen Mother, than, than the show gave them credit for. Well, who could not be with all those evil devils? <laughs> it's like you're 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 bound to start chatting to someone after you, after you've lost round sixteen of Ibble Dibble. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, all right, so here are some of the um, here are some of the spoilers. I hope you guys don't mind that we are that are coming out right now about the Crown season five, and I'd like to get your reaction. Uh, I was under the impression that they would feature the panorama interview. Because we saw in the first teaser two sit-down interviews. Buckingham Palace is issuing this statement. It is with regret the Prince and Princess of Wales are separating. There's uproar in Britain. After Prince Charles bared his soul to the nation. But the Princess of Wales upstaged her husband. Speaking about her broken marriage, her life and her future. Allegedly a long-time female friend. The tapes are filthy and disgusting. The left shocked and concerned by the astonishment. This is becoming all-out war. Um, but according to sources, the Crown will not feature the actual interview. So I know a lot of Prince William fans will be relieved by that because that was upsetting to him. But it's going to show the behind the scenes deception 
with Martin Bashir and Earl Spencer. Now, I bet you Earl Spencer is not looking forward to being featured in the upcoming seasons. He's complained in the past about people showing up on at his estate trying to debate him on history. And he was like, no, you're literally describing a scene from the crown. That didn't actually happen. Um, it, are you happy that the deception is going to, to be seen? Is, is, are they almost lucky that they started to develop these seasons after or around the time that BBC did this investigation? And I'll start with Shannon. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I am happy that they're going to show the deception because, frankly, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, and I'm not sure that it has resonated to American audiences or been told to American audiences, frankly. Uh, the UK is aware of it, but uh, we should all know the true history and the true events surrounding um, if, if they're, you know, if they're determined to tell the story, we should know as much truth as possible around that. So, yes. And I think in the way that I knew about the phone hacking from the news of the world but didn't really understand the effect of it the personal effect of it until i read the palace papers by tina brown and just how psychologically traumatizing that breach of privacy um was and so i think yeah i i think it's great that they're they're not going to show the interview portion but the deception uh of the bbc Gareth. Yeah, and I, I think I, I, I do agree. I, initially, I actually disagreed when I initially heard that. Oh, thought, really? Yeah, I thought that's because I thought it was. Um, I thought at that point, it's it, it just seems to me to to say, oh well, that's a bit much to show the interview, but they're going to dramatize the minutes leading up to your death. Seemed to me to be a little bit of a um, false uh, dramatic economy. To put it that to put it that way, but actually, upon reflection, I think it maybe shows a um, intention or willingness towards good faith with this mm -hmm. season. Is that if that's the right turn of phrase? That maybe there is an understanding that things are getting closer and closer to people who are still alive. And as you say, you know, the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Sussex have made it very have made it very clear that this is difficult for them, and they. And it, and it, look, it's part of the difficulty for the crown, which is that Elizabeth II's reign was so long that seasons one and two, you only need to look at them. They're costume dramas. They're period dramas. Beautiful, yes. And they and it's and then as you move forward, the difficulty becomes that by the nature of how time works, this impacts more and more people, and the wounds are fresher. So I actually do think the decision not to dramatize the interview, but to dramatize what we now know, as Shannon says, this deception that Martin Bashir perpetrated in the countdown to it, I think that is important. And I think it's a it's a positive step from the crown, absolutely. I can only imagine how difficult it must be for Charles Spencer to have people come up to him and to try to tell him about his own family's history based on a drama that they've seen. And that is frustrating. And these dramas, particularly when they are as well-written, well-acted and well-produced as The Crown, they have an enormous cultural impact and it would be obtuse to pretend that they don't. Mm. So I think taking the step back from showing the Panorama interview, because after all, if you want to see it, you can see it. It's, uh, so I think, that's, I think it's the right decision from The Crown and I think it's a, it's a positive step. Also, um, I was going to say, I, I was just thinking as Gareth was talking, that actually it's funny because the crown in its early seasons is actually one of the best things that happened to the royal family and yeah. now could not be one of the worst things. I mean, it is just, 
it with the ascension of the new king and the decade that they're going to portray all lining up right at the same time it's just such bad timing but actually the early seasons with Claire Foy and Matt Smith, as Gareth said, was a period drama. It really reinvigorated this interest yeah. in Queen Elizabeth II's legacy and her reign while she was still alive in the twilight years and really brought some of that glamour and mystique back to worldwide audiences. Um, and so at first it was actually a really good tool for them that they didn't have to touch. And it's just sort of what you remember, there was a bunch of funny stories. Do we think that the queen watches the, the, the crown? And I think that there was a story, Harry said that he had watched one on, you know, sat on the couch and watched one with her, whatever. At first it was, it was a really great thing for them, but as it's moved, as it's marched in time and as we've marched in time, We've now arrived at this moment that it just could not be, um, it could not be worse. Right. And they survived that stuff in real life. You know, I know that we're worried about this, but the the reality is, is they survived it in the 90s. They can survive it again, but it is ill-timed. I mean, I mean, I, when I was doing the research for this book and I met some of the Queen Mother's friends, the the warning signs were already there. There was quite a lot of anger Mm. she was presented in season four and there was a feeling that that with the queen mother they had played really fast and loose with the truth in season four and there were concerns that season five and six that this was sort of a a declaration of where where the story was prepared to go with the with other members of the royal family later I think, you know, absolutely. Look, they weathered, they weathered worse than this. And what I will say for The Crown is that it's very difficult to predict what it will do because season three, Prince Charles was the sort of the tragic hero of the piece and it was an incredibly sympathetic portrayal of him. And in season four, it completely flipped uh, into which he was uh, morose and aggressive and... So it could flip again, and you and we just don't know. But Gareth, I don't know that I I agree with both you and actually Kinsey, who brought this up <laughs> earlier about um uh I don't know I don't know the Josh O'Connor five eighties oh. Prince Charles um yeah. because I actually and maybe it's just because I'm American and therapy is my church, but <laughs> <laughs> but I actually had a better understanding of that flawed. Um, that flawed human and those reactions because I had seen season three, I was more able to see him as a full person instead of just a public persona or sort of stories and myths. Um, It was really, it was really easy to understand where the seeds of that personality um, came from. And so I'm wondering if there is actually a sympathetic way through the next season, season six, the nineties, because we call back on that um, season three, those yeah. traumas and that really, really, I mean, in, entirely privileged, but difficult um, childhood. I think, I mean, I hope, Kinsey, this is more your wheelhouse, but I, 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 a lot will depend on the way Diana is presented and written in this because I, to be a little bit controversial, I did not think that the press, I think a lot of people said that the crime was a very sympathetic portrayal of Diana in season four. I, I didn't find, I, I thought the portrayal of her was, um, vulgar. 
I thought she was presented as extremely stupid. And immature. Not as bad as Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Unwatchable. Yeah. Um, Everybody but, just has her wrapped around a toilet for the entirety of everything. I will say as someone who has had issues with that myself, I did not think that we needed to see another very graphic portrayal of bulimia. And I also felt coming from Northern Ireland, and this is a show that has said it's supposed to be about both the royals and the politics, how much time was given to Diana and things like, you know, the shoes that she was wearing in Australia compared to about one fifth of the time for the civil war in Northern Ireland was a little bit irritating right. um, to, to watch. And I think actually what this, it to me, this was the first time the crime became a little bit... Um, soap opera-y? Soap opera, it, yeah. It, yeah, it became so much about one person, which actually, to give credit to it before, because I think The Crown, I actually think The Crown season one is one of the greatest pieces of television ever made. I really, truly do believe that. And um, they balanced so many stories so well and so many storylines with that. And season four, I think, became a little bit more dominated by, by one storyline in particular. One thing I will say from having grown up in the UK which is a testament to the crown's power. And to go back to your point, um, Shannon, about you know the, the, how great it was. When I was growing up, Princess Margaret was pretty much the least popular member of the royal family. She was pretty mm. widely and deeply disliked. Wow. And she was regard. You know, Princess Margaret was a punchline for useless royals. Oh, and she I did. I've never heard. I've never heard that, that either. Princess Margaret was was not a loved figure. Princess Margaret was seen as, and um, Tracy Ullman used to do these kind of extorting um, skits of her, uh, thinly veiled, that was Princess Margaret was almost always held up as um, all she ever did was go to Mystique and drink and smoke and that she was, Princess Margaret was the avatar of overprivileged, underworked, Margaret was not a popular figure. She was the symbol of monarchical extravagance and waste. That was how she was portrayed. The Crown has almost single-handedly reworked Margaret's reputation into someone more sympathetic and tragic. So that is a testament to the dramatic and cultural capabilities of the show. Well, let me and ask you this. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this because I asked, uh, Andrew Morton had written a story, or I've written a story. Andrew Morton wrote a book, Sisters, about Margaret and um, the Queen. Andrew Morton says in his book that Margaret could have been with Peter Townsend, and she just opted not to. Where in The Crown, we see that, you know, she really was, her hand was forced. Uh, what do you what do you believe there? What have you heard? What where what is your take? Do you believe that she is this sympathetic character, or was that, you know, carefully crafted? I I mean, my own personal take on this is that um, I find it a little bit wearying when people say, "Oh, everything that went wrong was because she had her heart broken in her twenties." I'm like, who hasn't? Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, who hasn't thought they were or were madly in love in their twenties, and it didn't work out. It doesn't mean that the rest of your life is a bonfire of emotion. It, that's not what. That's not how it works. Uh, I have to say that everything I saw and read, I agree with Andrea. I think that that she, I, I there was definitely an element within the palace that did not want the marriage to happen and sent him to Brussels, as you see in the show, to get him away from Margaret. She was in 
Uh, she was away with her mother when that happened. She wasn't told it was happening. So the show gets all of that correct. But the idea that Margaret was... The, the, probably the, the greatest voice of catastrophizing about Margaret and Townsend was the Queen Mother because she was... She was remembering 1936 and she had these nightmare scenarios in her head that Margaret was going to be barred from living in palaces. The government wouldn't pay her civil list. She would lose her security. And that was the Queen Mother's fear. But Margaret had two years. And when the time was up, it was Margaret. You know, everything was put in place. She was going to be allowed to to um, marry in the Church of Scotland. The, the idea that she was going to have to give everything up was not true. And ultimately, I think maybe within two years, Margaret's feelings for Townsend cooled or changed. So I do think Margaret chose not to do it in the end. It was She was not forced. I like, to, I like to humanize them too and really like take it down to sort of how we would react because I think it's so easy to slip into talking about them as not just people. Yeah. So also what he was just saying about the, the Queen Mother you know, being so worried and remembering the abdication and everything. She was also being a mom whose really? young daughter was in love with a divorced father of two who worked for their father and was quite right. a bit older and ended up marrying a 19 year old. Like, right, right. You, you, you want like, better for your bad children. Boyfriend for you. Yeah. 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 You want better for I've your stepped in, I've stepped in way earlier for some friends. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> where were you for Prince Harry? Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I've, I've thought this a couple of times as both of you have been speaking. Did you see the posters and some of the photos that have come out today for the crown season five? I'm feeling cosplay vibes. And is that because we're so familiar with Princess Diana and Prince Charles in the 90s? Or is it because they've chosen familiar faces to us? So we're thinking, you're from Harry Potter. You know, like, what? why does that feel not so not as beautiful as season one and two. Oh, that is so interesting. I hadn't thought about that yet, but I think it was so hard for me to see Olivia Coleman as the queen. Oh. I couldn't get past it. I could not see her as anything other than Olivia Coleman. And what's so funny about it is that in her other roles, I don't see Olivia Coleman. I see the role wow. in the same way that like Meryl Streep, you look past that it's Meryl Streep and you see the role, but as her, as the queen, two of the most famous women in the world, I just could not unsee that it was Olivia Coleman playing the queen. And so I hadn't thought about that. It might be the familiar faces, but also to Gareth's earlier point, the nineties isn't period to us yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's just, I literally am still trying to dress like nineties Kinsey, yeah. my Christian band shirts and my <laughs> giant cargo shorts. Guys, I have bad news. I have a hard stop at three 30. Oh, okay. Hold on. Oh, let's see. Too what fun. is this? Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. are you leaving? Okay. I I'm love you. Uh, I would, I just want, what else do I have here? Um, any, any response to Charles in the, there's a scene where Charles approaches Sir John Major wants to replace the queen early nineties. This is causing a lot of controversy with John Major saying that the crown is a barrel load of nonsense. And what else did he say? Um, malicious, damaging and malicious fiction. I mean, you go, Shannon, since you have that's to leave. One, that's one for Gareth because I I had never heard I had never heard that, and I I would have a hard time believing it just given the reverence for the order of things. Um, 
of the whole family and, and the institution, but Gareth might know the history a little bit better. Um, I think we've had, you know, it's not just Sir John Major, it's also the Queen Mother's official biographer, William Shawcross, has come out and said that it's hurtful and it's unnecessary and many of the dramatic decisions taken he does not agree with and were unnecessarily cruel. I... Peter Morgan wrote The Queen, the 2006 movie, and in that, Prince Charles is shown to be a little bit of a game player at his mother's expense. And I think part of the problem that The Crown has, which has sort of flipped the roles a bit, is that billions upon billions of people have watched King Charles mourn his mother on camera. So actually, some of these scenes will now have the fourth wall sort of blown in a bit by what's happened in September with the Queen's funeral. And I think a lot of viewers will instinctively not believe scenes like that, having seen the King's grief. So in many ways, the, the Crown is, is going to have a, a difficult time with, with what, with, with just with the context of everything that's happened this autumn and winter. But I think from what we can tell, they are very aware of that. I think, you know, they're, they're aware that this is going to be a trickier season for them. Yeah, it's, it's super tricky. And, you know, the the King's redemption story from 1993 to now, Ascension of King, is really a, a turnaround story for the ages. I mean, this is like a complete glow up. He has had 25 years to rehab his public reputation. Um, and he's done it remarkably. I mean, like we said earlier, the Prince's Trust has done so much good work. I believe that his marriage to the Queen Consort Camilla has really shown stability, personal stability, personal warmth. I mean, they are lovely together. They speak so lovingly about each other. She is well loved in um, the palace by the palace staff. Everybody that works from that. And I'm talking, you know, I've had an opportunity to work with both of them. And we're talking um, from royal security to the royal rota to uh staff everyone just loves her and so that's just all of this sort of co context 25 years of context and nuance that we're not going to have and we have because we've been watching this whole time and paying attention and we understand the players we understand the personalities but you know the the general american viewer tunes in for jubilees and funerals and hopefully coronations and the crown so mm -hmm um it's it's difficult all right gotta go love you <laughs> thank you shannon <laughs> that was fun i love Shannon. i'm actually surprised that they decided to include this element in this story and i'd like your reaction to it the crown will go into the friendship of the countess mountbatten of burma and yeah. apparently the scene is prince philip tells her that he and the queen have grown apart and he hands her his personal phone number and then their hands touch and the camera zooms in to their hands touching in a carriage and it kind of lingers there. Um, I mean, th that's definitely something that we are interpreting probably more aggressively than than they even thought it would be when they were shooting it. But it doesn't feel appropriate to do when we just lost not only Prince Philip, but Queen Elizabeth II. It, 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 she's not, neither one of them are here to defend themselves. I mean, not that they would, but it right. just seems so nasty to do that when we just yeah. lost the both of them. See, I actually would flip that. I don't think the concern for me would be Elizabeth or Philip. My concern is that Lydia Mountbatten is still here. Yeah. Mm. And um, at some point, 
when these rumors start about the royals, and they often start not just with Prince Philip, but with many of them, the rumors start with very little and they grow. And it is people, it is the, the people they're accused with whose lives are ripped apart by this speculation. And so I'm absolutely prepared to give, I, I think it's unhelpful for people to start getting really angry about this until we see it. Right. It probably is not going to be presented this negatively. Um, but I would say that it could make the life of someone who, yes, was a friend of Prince Philip, but was a really good friend of the Queen. Yeah. Batten of Burma was a really good friend of the late Queen Elizabeth. And to have to put her in this position is, I think, is really thoroughly un unpleasant. And so I hope that that's not what the Crown is going to do because it is not right to take the lives and reputations of someone who is not a public figure, has never chosen to be a public figure and to throw them under the bus of public speculation with no evidence. So I hope that that's not what's going to happen for Lady Mountbatten's sake. That's a really great point. And I should have thought about that too. Um, she did, from what I understand, love them both. So to be put under a microscope like that with the entire world watching, uh, that has to be hurtful and concern. I mean, sh does she really want to have to address this at dinner parties or, you know, around the, the holiday, around the, the Christmas tree? It, it, I mean, that's a difficult position to be put in. And to have her name just dragged through social, through social media and mainstream media for years to come. And what they, what they will do if they are implying this is that they will fasten over that woman's head and name a question mark that everyone who meets her for the rest of her life will be asking her, will be asking themselves of her, was she romantically involved with Prince Philip? And I would also, I mean, from what I, uh, from what I have heard of Prince Philip, there's also more chance of him tap dancing on the moon than discussing his marriage with somebody else. Um, but but look, I mean, it, it is a drama. However. It is a drama that's based on real people in real lives, and some of them are not public figures, and they they could be about to have their privacy invaded in a really, really destructive way. And what is your take on the the date? Do you feel like they should have pushed it to um, after the coronation? Do you feel like it's um, uh, inappropriate to release it so close to the death of the queen? What are what is your reaction to that? No, I don't think it's inappropriate at all. I think if you're going to do this, stand by it. If, mm. you are, if you are prepared to make a drama about people who are recently deceased, and if you truly believe that you have done it with the best intentions, the best research, and the best faith, then why on earth would you push it back? So, my, so my, my, I think if you're going to do this, stand by it. Um, I, I, I think, uh, I, I'm sure also commercially, it's just a huge thing. To, to push it back, I'm sure it could even impact jobs. But my attitude to this is, if you are proud of your work, you should be proud of it at any date. And that's my, and what I mean is, if you're going to be criticized for it, then you have to be prepared for that as well. So I don't really think that a grace period of, until after the coronation really would do, I think that would benefit the crown. I actually do think it would have been in the show's best interests to push it back until after the coronation. Mm. But because I think the criticism they're going to get is going to be a lot more precise. And I think it's going to be a lot more um, targeted and sustained because of when it's coming out. But 
I think that comes with the territory of writing about living or recently deceased people. So no, I think if I think go ahead, do it, and let's and and stand by your work, and also be prepared for people to say that this was that not just your timing was inappropriate, that the decisions that were taken are potentially inappropriate. So for me, the timing is tertiary to what uh, my my concern would be that this is something that could be um, potentially very damaging to someone like Countess Mountbatten and also deeply distressing to Prince William and Prince Harry. Mm, So true. Um, What can you tell me about the Queen Mother in the 90s? Did anything happen that stands out to you that we might see in the Crown season five around her you know, storylines around, uh, around the queen mother. I, we did not necessarily see that she loved Diana in season four. Um, yeah. And that's from what I understand, she's kind of one of the people that instigated and, in, and encouraged Prince Charles along with Diana. So we wouldn't see that her switch sides. Um, no. but what, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's so interesting, actually, because that's a missed opportunity, really, isn't it? Because actually, the Queen Mother and Diana got on really well until about 1990. And Diana initially was convinced that her grandmother, Lady Fermoy, had turned the Queen Mother against her. Mm. As she was convinced, she said, my grandmother has done another um, hateful job on me. She was convinced that Lady Fermoy had turned the Queen Mother against her. And in fact, actually, uh, she one of her favourite pieces and one of her most famous pieces. We know that magnificent sapphire she wore when she danced with John Travolta? Yes. That was the Queen Mother's engagement gift to oh, her. Oh, wow. That's no. incredible. Was now, now, was Lady Fermoy a lady-in-waiting for the Queen Mother or the Queen? The Queen Mother. Interesting. Um, mother, and also a very celebrated concert pianist, apparently. Ah. But the Queen Mother, I think, in the 90s, she was very, very supportive of Charles. The Queen Mother and and uh, the now king had, had a very close and loving relationship. She had a lot of health concerns. What we are One thing I discovered whilst writing the book was I spoke to a lot of people, including people who weren't big fans of hers, who said that mentally she remained absolutely sharp and coherent up to the end, but physically really at about 96. So about 1995, 96, she started having really, as happens with a lot of old people uh, in later in life, a lot of broken bones, falls, choking accidents. But there was a great moment where she was a very keen fisherwoman and she was hospitalized after choking um, on a fish bone. And when she left, she made a point of stopping to turn to the press and say, please don't worry, the salmon were getting their own back. <laughs> So, you know, she, she sort of kept that sense of humor up to the end. She, um, but, but very interestingly, because the Queen Mother was so old, there had been a lot of preparations for her funeral. And the, the codename for that was Operation Tay Bridge. And Princess Diana was so young and died so suddenly that they had to use the rehearsals for the Queen Mother's funeral for Diana's. They just, they basically slotted in Diana's guests and Diana's plans around the Queen Mother's uh, funeral plans because there was nothing prepared for Diana. So, was do you think the Queen Mother was resentful over that? Because I imagine that she did work very hard on her own funeral and had a lot to say about it. So, would she be? Do you think she'd feel resentful that somebody swooped in and took her plans? I actually think she was sort of resolutely matter of fact about these things, and I think oh. she was she was quite re- she because her funeral was so immaculately coordinated I think she was quite pleased for the country's sake that it had gone off so smoothly and but she you know she there were other things I mean Princess Margaret in particular was extremely hostile to Diana Mm -hmm. 
point. And one of the things I discovered while writing the book was that Princess Margaret made some really harsh comments. She said, you know, when, when Diana died, the whole country became as hysterical and unhinged as she was. And she referred to the floral decorations as floral fascism. And Princess Margaret was one of the main uh, obstacles for there being a memorial to Diana in Kensington Palace Gardens. Margaret did not want any memorial to Diana. Uh, and, and so it was really, Margaret was a lot more hostile to her than the Queen Mother was. And in fact, one of the people that, that I interviewed for this book, who in fact was the Queen Mother's last official meeting, quite interestingly, she told me that the rumour that was going wrong, this was 2001, was that the Queen Mother had had every image of Diana removed from her home. But when she went in to see her in December 2001, there was a really lovely big frame photograph of Diana with Prince William on the Queen Mother, on the table next to the Queen Mother's fireplace. So she did not, that was not true. The Queen Mother had left pictures of Diana Yes, she had. The Queen Mother had left pictures of and had of them right up to the end. She had pictures of Diana with William and Harry. That is so, so sweet. I, it is. It, it's interesting. I think generally we have to, you know, not treat the royals as stock characters in a play. Human emotions are complex and fluid and they change. And, and certainly actually even the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret felt heartbroken for Prince Harry because Princess Diana died so close to his birthday. Mm-hmm. So, I think she died with gifts for him in her luggage. I mean, that's that's I, I've always thought about that when I've read about that, what it must be like to be handed that gift. You know, I, I, I don't know. want this. This is going to remind yeah. me of something horrible. Um, but I, I almost wondered if Margaret was so because I knew she was not kind to her towards the end of her life. But I wondered if it was because Margaret related to her so much. I need a purpose. I, I feel like I feel neglected. Um, there are very strict rules for me. Am I a caged bird? And so when when Diana took a detour and Margaret yeah. had stayed the course, Margaret was like, I have no sympathy for you. This is hard work. I think that's the latter half I would completely agree with. I think Margaret was... Princess Margaret was a lot tougher than she appears in The Crown. She could be, and actually I will say one of the things I, you know, both Princess Margaret and Princess Diana did absolutely outstanding work with um, AIDS patients in the 1980s when no one else would. Mm -hmm. I think you're probably right. I think Princess Margaret felt that, and both, both Princess Margaret and Princess Diana were, incredibly strong monarchists it was just their version of what the monarchy should be were was very different and margaret was intensely loyal to her sister Mm -hmm. and to the institution and she felt that or seems to have felt that publicly complaining about things was distracting was appalling and was distracting to the mission of the monarchy that you know margaret was was not as much of a free spirit. You know, she was someone who really did believe in the values that her parents had promoted in the 1940s. So I, so she was very, and also, sorry, I should say, Princess Margaret, um, Aunt Margot, as Charles called her, Princess Margaret, you know, was a woman of really strong, intense loyalties, and her loyalty was to her nephew, Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've, I've read that she didn't she did sympathize with Diana through the uh, affair, 
However, it was when Diana sat down with Panorama and questioned Charles's ability to lead. That's when Margaret was like, I'm done with you. Yeah, and Margaret was, I think, really a kind of Rubicon moment kind of person, which was like the minute you cross the point of no return, that was it with Margaret. I think, you know, someone with such, such strong loyalty to her family. And yeah, and which again, as we've talked about, the, the impact of that Panorama interview, now that we know how it was conducted and the way in which Diana was lied to by people that she trusted, it makes it even more tragic that for many people, and bear in mind, Margaret and Diana lived in Kensington Palace together. Mm-hmm. From the day and moment the Panorama interview went out, that was it. Margaret actually stopped referring to her for a long time, even by her name. She just referred to her as the girl my nephew married. Oh, wow. I, yeah. I remember too reading that Margaret, Princess Margaret had this great, um, I don't know if it was a driveway or there was a space around Princess Margaret's entrance that you could go unseen where nobody would see you. And so that's kind of the pathway Princess Diana would take her lovers. And Margaret was always watching. So while Diana thought she was being super sneaky and getting people through the door and nobody was going to know about whoever it was, Princess Margaret was like peering through the window like, I I can see you. And that's, you know, what I actually have to say, for I mean, I think that will be an interesting dynamic of the crown explores that. Um, I think that's so intriguing. Um, I had my uh, one of my girlfriends, Amelia, is a fan of yours, and she reached out to me and wanted to know about, uh, you know, the Queen Mother's interests, you know, male interests before she got married. Who did she date? Who did she have crushes on? And was, was there anybody else seriously in the running or was she instantly smitten? I talk about this in the book uh, a lot because really it's difficult for us almost to process just how um, the debutante season worked. And it was, you didn't go on dates. You you know, this is what was so interesting was she was not allowed to go to your restaurant unless there was a chaperone. This is how the girls of the aristocracy were brought up during during that debutante season. And there's, there's some fantastic quotes in the debutantes where they, you know, they used to say, you, you know, people propose to each other all the time. Uh, and it was quite rude when you said no, if someone didn't at least politely promise never to be happy again. You know, it, it was almost like, you know, you collect proposals. She certainly had a lot of people who were interested in her. Uh, we know that um, quite a few of them, though, seem to have turned out to be gay. Uh, but the, uh, no, I think... Um, I think probably the most serious was a dashing war hero called Captain James Stewart, who was another Scottish aristocrat. Uh, he he very much for the rest of his life claimed that they were meant to be together and and they were besotted with each other. I did find out he cheated on her, though. Oh. Um, yeah, with one of her friends. Oh, no. Uh, and Elizabeth was not uh, pleased. I bet. So and but initially she really liked her future husband. She but but it took a while for her to fall in love, and there seems to have been a moment where it happened. You know that they were at Claridge's, this hotel in London, dancing, and someone looked over and said, "Oh, for the first time, actually, they seem to be. She seems to be as in love with him as he is with her." So and, I yeah. Oh, I just wanted to to ask because when we you know we spoke last time about how the the Queen Mother's father was a monarchist, but really not interested in in the royal family. Um, So is it true that the Queen Mother had a crush on her husband's brother initially, or was there any interest there? 
or is that just a nasty rumor? That's, I have to say, um, I, uh, I do discuss it in the book and I don't have much patience with it after yeah. having done the research. First of all, it was the brother-in-law who who started this theory years later. You know, she Hilarious. was actually with me. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying he's the Christian Cole of the of the time, but he's not a million miles removed from it. He's sort of, a, you know, he, he really loathed her by this stage. Mm. And he was saying, well, actually, the reason why she never liked Wallace is because she was really in love with me. I find that she was, she got on really well with his girlfriends before Wallace, particularly the one called Frida Dudley Ward. They got on very well. Uh, they What I discovered was that they really did not spend enough time together before she said yes to his brother for her to have been in love with him. They sort of bumped into each other at one or two parties. Well, that's um, what I was thinking. If if she didn't grow up in a household where the family was obsessed with the royal family, yeah. how do you really have an opinion of him whatsoever to have a crush on him? Well, this is the thing. And actually, I think where people really miss the point, because this story just keeps going and going. And actually, one of the things I discovered going, seeing her diaries and letters and, and things that she wrote to friends, and this was all un- unfolding, was it wasn't that she wanted a higher ranking royal. She actually didn't really want to marry into the royal family at all. And in fact, one of the reasons she kept pulling back from her future husband was she said, you know, this is not just a marriage to him. It's a marriage to the public and to the country. And I will never have a full private life again. And in fact, when, you know, she said to her her younger brother, I felt a door close behind me that will never open again in terms of a fully private life. So the idea that she was secretly in love with her brother-in-law, I would have to say, at the start. And scheming to get a better title or, you know. One of the things I did, because when you're doing a book like this, you do have to take the rumor seriously, even if they seem suspect to you. So what I did was I went through her brother-in-law. I went through her brother-in-law's timetable from this period when she came out as a debutante until she said yes to his brother. The brother-in-law was on tour to India and Japan and he was out of the country for months on end. So there physically was no time. They, I think they, they, they're they recorded as being in the same room three times uh, before she said yes to his younger brother. So the idea that she was, that that she settled for Bertie or that she was secretly in love with the elder brother is just completely unsustainable from a documentary and chronological point of view. And just a cruel rumor that somebody made up to make themselves look better or feel better yeah. about their circumstances. I just, I off. I mean, sometimes when people say, Oh, well, Edward the eighth said it. I'm like, Edward the eighth all said a lot of nice things about Hitler. Like yeah, really- I was just going to say like the, the, the guy that hang out with Nazis, right? And, and one of the things it's in the book, I put it in because I, I felt so strongly about it. He was still defending Hitler up until the 1970s, and I and I find people who had had dined with him and said, "I'm tell- this is what he said," and it was corroborated by three people <sighs> that, that, that this was a man with like really frightening views. And this is after everyone knew about the Holocaust, and he was still defending Hitler. Mm. I did want to ask you really quickly, and then I'll let you go. Um, how has how has the book? How has, uh, and this is for podcasts, this isn't just me being gossipy. How has the book gone over over there? It was released this week, or no, God, it's Monday. It was released last week, and I've seen some really great reviews. What what have your favorites been so far? Well, it was a, it was, I felt very lucky that it sold out on Amazon in the first um, day. Okay. Okay, bragger. (laughs) No, well, that, but also the thing is, it was, it was just so, unexpected and i got woke up to these messages and you'll know that you'll know when anything goes you think it's gone wrong you panic and 
people were saying we, we can't get it for five weeks. Um, and I, I said, oh, it might, it'll be an administrative error. In my head, I'm thinking, Mary, Mother of God, what has happened? Right. But it, it, because they, that's just an automatically generated message until they get new stock in. So I was, I think it's just been really, um, it's been really touching how it's gone over and really ex- exciting because I think it's a book I loved writing. I, I really loved writing this book and meeting these people. Um, I, I like, I mean, the Times and the Telegraph reviews were great. I liked the, the Telegraph um, ending, you know, I raised my glass to it. I thought that was sort of kept. Oh, so great. Yeah. I thought that was but, fun too. It, well, it's, look, it's been, um, I mean, you, you know, you know this. I just, I, I took so seriously meeting these people who knew her and being able to put those memories down for people to read. And I wanted it, I hope for people it's a book that it, it is informative. It's all, you know, sourced and fact-checked and all the rest of it. But the tone, I want it to be that you you feel like you're hearing this at a dinner party or you're having a drink or you're relaxing and you can dip in and dip out. And that, it seems very early days yet, but it seems to have done, gone down that way so far. I know I haven't been in, in in your position where I've really gotten to explore meeting a ton of people that have met or been around my subject. But while I was there for the queen's funeral, there was one moment where I was alone in the makeup room with Ken Wharf watching the queen's funeral. And I, I like literally my heart fell into my butt because I just couldn't believe there's probably, especially from you, a much more elegant way to say that. But I, um, I just could not believe that I was in the same room with somebody that actually had the chance to love and care about this person that I've developed such strong feelings for, and that I've dedicated so much time to. And I'm like, wow, it's me and Ken. What question could I ask him? And I just couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything. I just sat there and enjoyed this moment of experiencing the queen's funeral with somebody that protected and loved Diana and her boys. And it was an incredible experience. Even that silence was, it was incredible. It, because, well, I've definitely been in that position where, I mean, I've been at sort of dinners or things and people have, have been next to me or I've, talking and they knew the queen mother and your mind does go blank for a minute it was definitely easier for me when the interview had been when we pre-arranged and we corresponded because then i would have uh broader questions to ask sometimes though i'm sure you you know this yourself as well you just let them talk you just mm-hmm. ask sometimes memories are so precious and i think you know it, it, uh, whether it was a, a complimentary m- memory or a critical memory I, it was an honor that someone would share that with me because that's their life. That's that's their interaction with history. So, yeah, my mind did go. But you know, sometimes you you're just it suddenly dawns on you the privilege that you have to hear this. You know, it's like no, you absolutely, it is. You you are in that exact moment. You're like thanking the universe for for what you're what's happening. Right, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeth Russell, another great interview, another great happy hour. We're going to see you again next week. Congratulations on all the success of Do Let's Have Another Drink. Americans can't wait to get their hands on it. Um, how can people keep up with you? So they can follow me on Instagram at underscore Gareth Russell, or they can go on to my Facebook page, which is Gareth Russell Historian. I love it. Thank you so much, friend. I'll talk to you again okay. next week. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. 
Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.